This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A., and I'm going to be taking a little break from Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter just for one episode here to talk to you about something very important to me, which is the source material for our extra donation series we're doing right now over at our sister podcast, Now Playing. If you donate $25 or more, you're going to get Exorcist, and you're going to get three Thing movies, starting with the 1951 Thing from Another World, followed by John Carpenter's Thing in the 80s, and this new thing that's out in theaters right now. All of them were based on John Campbell's 1938, 69-page short story, Who Goes There? And it's a good one. So I recommend, if nothing else, if you can't find the $25, find the time to sit down and read this story because it's great. It's chilling, it's paranoid, and it's everything that I'm looking for in a pulp science fiction adventure when I sit down and to read one. And easy to see why they keep going back to remake it. All these stories are basically the same setup. We're in a snowy, isolated confines, whether the North Pole or the South Pole. Here in the story, it's an Antarctic camp, and they're scientists. And these scientists are very similar to the way that John Carpenter presents them. Namely, our hero is McCready. He's described as a, quote, mythical bronze figure. He's got a red beard, and he's six foot four. And you get the sense that he is not the guy in charge, but the guy that we're going to follow throughout the story. And, And keep in mind, this camp's big. There's 37 other men here, so it's easy to get lost in all the characters. They name many of them, but only a few are are really important to the story. But these guys basically stumble upon a flying saucer located 100 feet beneath the ice, dig it up, blow up the ice to get to it, destroy the ship, but find the passenger a few yards away. Now, I haven't seen the new thing yet as uh, of this recording, so all that I can have to go on are, are the two previous ones. And uh, the creature as it's presented in the novel is neither the super carrot it's presented to be in the 50s version, but it also has its own shape. You know, in the Carpenter story, it starts as a dog, and we never know exactly what the real thing there is. I mean, does it have a real face? Well, this story seems to answer that. When they stare at it through the frozen ice, what they see, what they describe, is a blue-skinned creature with three red eyes, searing, blisteringly mad eyes, crawling tendrils of worms. So even though it's frozen, they can see it's it's sort of like dreadlocks, just like moving around. It's a blue hair of worms. And they thaw it out, and it's, the skin kind of turns rubbery, and with green-blue blood, it's 87 pounds. And so the rules of this alien are that it will always have 87 pounds to it. It can't be anything lighter than that. So it consequently, it targets other organisms that it can devour and emulate that are 87 pounds or higher. So I guess if, if you were to drop this thing off in like a, a supermodel photo shoot, it just wouldn't know what to do because you would always be able to tell. <laughs> 
<laughs> but but here in Antarctica with a bunch of men and, and big coats, everyone's weighing over 87 pounds. And so it has lots of places to hide here. And that's what it sets out about doing, jumping between the sled dogs and the other men. It is eating everyone and taking their identity and growing as it does so. The paranoia of the story is you don't know who to trust. That's the title. Who goes there? What am I looking at? The movies, well, at least the 50s one, of course, was all about communism. Here, I mean, communism was a threat, but it wasn't the Red Scare yet. In 1938, when this was published, I think we were a little bit more scared of Hitler. All of that was going on. Certainly, the Russian pogroms and the rise of communism was well known, but I don't feel like that was maybe necessarily the source inspiration for this story. Instead, I think Campbell really is just telling a a story about paranoia and extinction. I mean, really looking at the possibility that we could be working towards something that through our need to understand science, that could destroy us all. And in that way, whether he knew about it or not, it it totally emulates the idea of the bomb. And it it has a similar sort of dread to it. As it starts expanding, the men realize they have to keep this creature contained on the ice base, because if it gets a hold of something that can fly then they're screwed, right? It's, it's got to stay in Antarctica or the, all of mankind. There's just no controlling it once it gets away. And, of course, it's theorized. Uh, there, there's a lot of debate about what this creature can do and why, for example, it can't fly. If it knows how to be all of these other creatures that it's been on other planets, why doesn't it sprout some wings and get out of here? And it's, it's theorized that there's something about the atmosphere, the hostility of the climate that prevents it from being airborne in this environment. And keep in mind, this thing has been under the ice for 20 million years, so everything might have changed by then. Everything that it's learned and planets that it's emulated might have drastically changed. But I was really impressed how closely Carpenter emulated this story for his version of the thing. I think if you're a fan of the 1982 movie, you'll be really pleasantly surprised at how many things carry over from this short story. The 50s movie, it had its own ideas. Different screenwriters and just a different time with a different agenda. I want to emphasize that too. It was definitely written as a response to the threat of communism. So they they work that into the story. It works well as a story about who can you trust when they look like you, but they live and breathe and think differently than you. It's an easy metaphor to adapt to a communist threat, but this story is more closely aligned to the paranoia that Carpenter creates. There's other livestock on the base, and uh, that's when the men really know that they're screwed is when it jumps into the bulls and the cows and, of course, the dogs. And they realize they've been milking these cows even and that it could have gotten in the milk and that it could have spread that way. So that even once they contain it, once they first realize that the creature, after it warms up and eats one of the men and then tries to go for Chanuk the sled dog, they get that. They stall that threat. But it's already jumped. It's bigger than they, they think. And what Blair, the biologist, suggests is that they've opened Pandora's box. That they, going back to Greek myth and thinking about all of that implies, is that they have now released something that cannot be contained again. And that he goes mad. He actually becomes a threat to the men in his own way, too. Not even being a thing, he decides that they all must die. And so he kills the sled dogs and he destroys the gear and they have to isolate him from everyone because he, at this point, is just plum cuckoo and is nihilistic. He wants to destroy everyone as a way of protecting mankind at all. 
There's a cook character that has an interesting discovery. In John Carpenter's movie, he's known as Nalls. He's kind of similar here, but he's known as Kinnear. Kinnear really becomes God-fearing at this point. At the thought of apocalypse, he turns to religion, and he's screaming prayers and psalms and praises to God all of during this time and driving everyone nuts. And someone actually murders him because they can't stand the thought of him making any more noise. So you really have men turning on each other, not because they're possessed by this outer space monster, but because they can't stand one another. Like It's just getting to them, the stir craziness. The paranoia is feeding into their own malicious thoughts. But before he dies, he does have an interesting discussion piece. That is, what I know if I'm a monster. If it emulates everything that I am, including my brain, my brain waves, the connectivity, my thought patterns, could I actually be the thing and not know that I'm the thing? Could I actually be thinking thoughts that I'm innocent and not know that I am guilty? And it's, you're really getting to some paranoia here, Kafkin, really. And proof to that, Kinnear is a thing, and he didn't even know it. Once he's killed, he sprouts blue fur, and they can tell that even though he was praying to God to save his humanity, he was already turned into the alien and didn't even know it. So it's great stuff, so fertile to explore. But of course, the story doesn't know exactly how they can define that clearly. It's by limiting it to these men on the base, uh, we can only know what they know. And the further we go along, the less they know. But there's lots of scientific speak here, and there's lots of postulating about how the creature works and what it could do. And the ultimate fear is that once they see albatrosses appearing on the horizon, they realize that a flying creature is all that it's going to need to get away. If it touches an albatross, it can become the albatross, and that albatross can go to a populated area away from their Antarctic camp. And so the thrust of the story at the end is stopping either the bird or stopping the things from getting to the bird. Campbell throws a curve that I don't see in the Carpenter movie, though, in that the creature is kind of telepathic. It can actually implant ideas. It can control the weaker-willed minds of the people. And that just makes it even more crazy. I can understand why they would cut that from here, because it's hard to film that. It's hard to convey that information cinematically. We need to understand that there are limits to this thing. I mean, as written, it feels like anything it's ever come in contact it could do, and it's come in contact with a whole bunch of different worlds. So if it met a telepath and now can telecommunically control other people, that's just it's a little too hard to demonstrate in a movie. We need to keep its skills limited to puppets and prosthetics, I think, not mental games. But they do have this whole idea about the blood and testing and the way to figure it out is to heat the blood. It's not McCready that actually does it. It's another pilot. Van Wall is his name. But they work through the 37 men. They uh, cut them down. About half of them are other things. And they get it limited until they're back with Blair. And Blair, much like the John Carpenter story, Wilford Brimley, he is the last remaining thing. And Blair has been making some kind of thermal device. Not only could it be a flying contraption, but it also could be nuclear. And so they're really tipping their hat here about the threat of science and nuclear power and all that it could be uh, as a threat to humankind. But for the final fight, it drops the look of Blair once it realizes it serves no purpose to hide as him. It goes back to its uh, blue state. It's actually bouncing around like a blue rubber ball. 
has four tentacle arms and snakes. You know, a really cool version of this. If you want to kind of see it as another artist has seen it, but not how it's demonstrated in the John Carpenter movie, why don't you just go ahead and Google the Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. This is a book I actually had when I was a kid, and I love it. This guy actually, as a graphic designer, he, he drew, as he envisioned them, all of these classic science fiction characters. Didn't have a budget for a movie, so it was good old pink and N, but he's done a fabulous job of conceiving the thing as it's described in Who Goes There. So check it out. Kind of has him dealing half sled dog. But this is the thing I imagine they're fighting, and one of the men actually shoots out its red eyes, and it jets out this giant tongue. It's kind of a big, satisfying battle, but they end up taking it out with a blowtorch. Now, and John... Campbell's world, dead means dead. So once the creature is dead, they don't see a carcass as a threat. But in John Carpenter, he actually takes the paranoia further and says, an alien thing is just as contagious, dead, dormant, as it is alive. So they don't get into that here. They kill it. They go see what it's doing. They find his anti-gravitational belt he was going to use to fly away and the nuclear part and theorize about what kind of world a creature like this could have even evolved from and come to and and are left just questioning what brought it here and will it be back? To answer any of those questions further, we need to see more. And that means seeing the new thing that's out in theaters. I'm going to set down this book and go right now. So I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope you keep reading. But let's go find out what's going on with the thing. And I hope that you can join us for an extra donation and get Exorcist and Thing for Halloween. Thanks for joining me. And we'll see you next week for Hannibal, the third Thomas Harris, Hannibal Lecter story. It reunites Clarice and Hannibal ten years later, and I can't wait to read it. See you then. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2011, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved.